and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We've all heard the cliche, nothing personal, it's just business. And that's all Ruth's situation was for one person in this story. But God sees things differently. Teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series Ruth, a story of God's steadfast love with this message entitled, The Worthy Risk of Steadfast Love which covers Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders in the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, then I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story, this ancient story that you wrote so long ago that is still so applicable to us today. The story of Ruth and Boaz and how you have redeemed a people unto yourself. And Lord, we just ask this morning that by your grace, would you open our eyes to see the truths and the, the beauty of this story Would you open our ears to hear what you would have us hear about you, our need for you, our need for the gospel? Lord, would you, through your Holy Spirit, fill me simply as your messenger? And God, would you bring great glory to yourself this morning as we open your word together? Would you teach us? 
And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I feel like in my time here at Perimeter, I've opened several sermons the way I'm about to open this one and talking about this same theme. And I keep doing that because I think it's something that uh, we forget so easily and it's at the core of the human struggle. And so we have to keep coming back to it because we keep falling into it. And that's simply this, that we are a people who will go to great lengths to self-protect and self-preserve. We are a people who are centered in many ways, naturally, instinctively on self-preservation and self-protection. I don't mean just physically, although that's certainly our instinct as well is to protect ourselves from physical danger. But what I'm speaking to here is primarily how we do that emotionally and relationally and even reputationally. We will, we will go to great lengths to protect our image, to protect our reputation, to protect our resources, to protect our status, to protect our appearance, things that we will go to uh, extraordinary lengths to present ourselves to you, to, to the people around us as having it together, as not being in need, to, uh, to being what you wish you could be. I wish, you know, we want people to wish to be us, right? And if, we've, if we're able to do that, then in some way, in terms of the human narrative, we've somehow arrived. And then we will do whatever we need to do, even if it means at the cost of another, to protect that, that which we've acquired or that we perceive we've acquired. You know, I, I wrestled so much even, even over the weekend in this past week um, about my image because I learned two important lessons in the game of golf. One is it's always to your benefit to not hit the little golf ball into the woods. Two is uh, there's a limit to which you should search for that ball because you could end up with poison ivy on your neck. And I wrestled with, do I even say this? Do I even, because I don't want you thinking the whole time, dude, did he forget how to shave? Like what happened to his neck? But I was like, okay, but I can die to that. I don't, have, I don't owe that to them. And then here I am, I'm doing it. I'm already self-protecting. I'm self-preserving myself up here. You need to know why I have two big red dots on my neck, right? You need to know that. No, you don't. You don't have to know that. But yet there's something within me that's like, no, 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 you have to protect yourself so that people know that you haven't lost some ability to shave properly, right? <laughs> they need to know it's poison ivy. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's not that important. But yet there's just something instinctive within us. Yes, it's learned. We learn to self-protect and self-preserve the more that we're wounded in life. And sometimes we learn that at a very early age, but it's also something that's been true of us ever since sin came into the world and therefore came into our hearts. So it's been a part of us from the beginning. It's part of our nature. I can remember as a kid, there's a story that just stands out to me. Uh, I grew up in a place where uh, it's, it was Friday Night Lights, the movie or the show in reality every Friday. Small town where everything revolved around the high school football team. And whether you knew someone playing on the team or cheerleading or not, you went to the game. And so I grew up in a family where from the earliest I can remember, regardless of the temperature, if it's cold, we're bringing our thermos and blanket right? That kind of thing. We're going to the high school game, football game. And I can remember I was maybe eight or nine years old and I can remember being at one of the games and the way that 
it worked for us, maybe this is reminiscent for some of you, is that back then, I don't know if you can do this anymore, uh, you could play on the track. All the kids, it was like this incredible game going on in front of the game. So like on the track, all the kids played their football game with their little ball and never knew what was going on in the real game, but the parents didn't care because it kept the kids busy. And so I was on the track, never knowing what was going on, but eventually someone, either a parent or somebody who was paying more attention than I was, would say, hey, the game's almost over, it's time to go up. And so at the end of this particular game, I'm going up the stadium steps. And just as I begin up the steps, there's an elderly man in front of me who falls. And he's on the ground struggling to get back on his feet. And I can remember so vividly, it's funny how we have certain memories that just stick with us. I can remember what I felt. I remember feeling such deep compassion and sadness and pity for this man and wanting really genuinely, desperately wanting to help him. But I can remember, and I'm not just making this up so it fits with the story here. I can remember why I didn't. And it was because I was worried about, I was concerned about what would it look like? How would I be perceived by the people around if, if some little boy tried to help an older man? Isn't that weird? Like that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. Like if anything, it would help my image. If anything, the adults around would be like, look at that little boy. Well, isn't he, he's got a great heart in him, right? But for whatever reason, I was hesitant to move towards someone in need because of what it might cost me and how I might be perceived. Now, the craziest part of the story, as I remember it, is that there were three or four adults who also saw this man fall and who also were just watching him struggle to get back up and were not helping. And I can remember thinking, well, they're not doing it, so I guess I won't, and I'm the kid. I don't owe this man anyway because kids don't really do this kind of thing. I'm waiting on the adults to do what adults do. Don't look at me but the adults weren't helping either. It was a bizarre and sad situation that was ingrained into my mind and an early lesson for me, the extent to which I will go to self-protect my image and reputation, even at the cost of another. Eventually, I, presumably this man's daughter, I would guess, realizes what's happening and comes down, back down the stairs. And as she is struggling to get her, I guess, dad or uncle or friend or somebody back on his feet, she looks around at us in dismay and says, why is no one helping him? And I can remember even in a little eight-year-old heart thinking, yeah, why is nobody helping him? What's wrong with you people? And how quickly, not only will we self-protect and self-preserve, but we'll deflect and say, it's your fault. You should have been doing something that I wasn't willing to do, but you should be. This is a part of the human, it's at the core of the human struggle. And it happened that night, on that Friday night, but it's happened in my life so many times since then in various ways, in various circumstances, in various situations where I've walked away from it going, why did I not move towards that person? We are a people who are so concerned with self and protecting me that we are hesitant. We are hesitant and even unwilling to risk our comfort for the benefit of others. 
I want you to sit in that. I want you to sit in that reality. I mean, I don't think this is any news to us. We know if we're willing to look introspectively into our hearts, we know this is true. If we're willing to embrace it, we have to be able to say, okay, this is a problem. We live in a world that says, that preaches to us in many subtle ways and in some very explicit ways, look out for number one, protect yourself at all costs. What we're gonna see in this story today is we're gonna see Boaz. We're gonna see this man who is willing to risk all kinds of things at the cost of himself for the sake of another. A redeemer, one who will stand in the gap for someone else. And what we're also gonna see is that he is such a beautiful foreshadowing, just a little snippet of a greater redeemer who's gonna come in his line, who will stand in the gap for a people in great, great need. So turn with me, Ruth chapter four, verses one through 12. Last week we were in this passage as we worked through it as a teaching team. Uh, We got to this part of the book and we thought, you know what, we probably need to teach this passage twice for, for this reason. Let's teach it first, and this is what Bob did last week. Let's teach it first, uh, primarily focused on vertically what's happening here. How does this story point us to the grander story of the Bible that's showing us the Redeemer, Jesus, who goes to great lengths and suffers great personal cost for the sake of redeeming others? And so that was last week's focus. This week's focus, we're looking at the same text, but we're zooming in on the horizontal application of the text. That if it's true that Christ has done for us what we talked about last week, that he has ransomed us at great cost to himself with this steadfast love that's the theme of this book that I'll speak to in just a second, then the implications of that, the natural consequences of that kind of love gripping our hearts is that we display it horizontally in our relationships. Another way to say it is this, the redeeming steadfast love of God that we experience personally becomes the redeeming steadfast love of God that we display relationally. And they go together. They can't not go together. You've heard us say, if you've been in this series, and if you haven't, then hear this for the first time, that the theme of the book of Ruth is the steadfast love of God. The Hebrew word that you may have heard before is hesed, the hesed love of God. And this word hesed in Hebrew is a thick word. It's a rich word, so much so that we we don't have one word or even phrase in the English language that adequately uh, displays or conveys what this word really is getting at at the heart. The hesed love of God, we sometimes, most of the times translated into English as steadfast love. This, This relentless, unwavering, always pursuing, never giving up, forever love of God kind of thing. But there's also words that we use like the mercies of God, the kindness of God. And ultimately what we're doing is we're trying to use anything that we can possibly use that gets to the way in which God loves. And he loves us with this hesed love, this steadfast, kind, merciful love of God. And when that love through Jesus, as we now know on this side of the cross, 
through Christ, as we experience the love of God, this relentless, steadfast love of God, this committed, this covenant love of God, as it grips us and as it changes us from the inside, we display that same love to the world around us. You could also say it this way. If you're not changed in how you love those around you, if you still find yourself primarily, and we all struggle with this, but what I mean is primarily and really all the time, consistently, you find yourself loving people in a very selfish way. It's always someone else's fault. There's never ownership of my own sin. There's never repentance. And there's never a moving towards someone at the cost of me for their benefit. Then you have to deductively logic, do I know and have I experienced in a saving way the steadfast love of God in my own heart? Because if everything I do relationally is not pointing towards his steadfast love, then you go, well, there could be a major disconnect here because the steadfast love of God changes us from the inside out that we, begin, that we begin to display it to the world around us. Not perfectly, we do it very messy because we still struggle with sin and selfishness, but we are moving in that direction. So the story of Ruth is simply this, before we pick up in chapter four, I just wanna, I know again, we have lots of visitors, many who have not been in the series, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous sermons, but here's the snippet to bring us up to speed in Ruth chapter four. There's this girl named Ruth, probably could have guessed that, it's the name of the book. And she's not an Israelite, she's not Jewish, she's not of the people of God. She's actually of a people who are enemies of God's people, the Israelites. She's, she's a Moabite. And she is the daughter-in-law though of an Israelite woman named Naomi. Naomi had fled into Moab with her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, Chilion and Malon. And they fled into Moab because there was a famine in Israel, in Bethlehem, where they lived, because of God's judgment upon his people for not being faithful and obedient to him. And so they go into Moab for 10 years, and while they're there for 10 years, their two sons, Naomi and Elimelech's two sons, marry Moabite women. One is Ruth, one is Orpah. Over the course of time, though, Elimelech, the patriarch and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, they die. And so all that's left is Naomi, this widow, and her two daughters-in-law who are widows and are not Israelites, they're Moabite women, they're foreigners, they're outcasts. As the story goes, they eventually come back to Bethlehem empty. Naomi is bitter towards God. She's angry with God because she sees it as God taking everything away from her that she left full. She comes back empty and she has lost all faith. And the only one who's displaying faith is this foreigner, Ruth. Orpah has left Naomi and gone back to her Moabite roots. She's no, no longer with the family, but Ruth has stayed faithful, demonstrating Hesed love to Naomi and beginning to believe and trust the God of Naomi Yahweh, the God of Israel. Naomi displays incredible faith where she steps out in faith, a risky faith, a bold faith, an expectant faith that God's gonna provide for them not only food, but also a redeemer, a family member of Naomi who will redeem back for them their name. And name means everything in that time. 
You had to have a male name. Women had no status, especially widows. And so they need a redeemer. They need a kinsman redeemer who will come in and stand in the gap for them and redeem their namesake, the namesake of Elimelech and Malon back into the family name so that they can have an inheritance of the land that belonged to their late husbands and actually have a status in the world. Naomi doesn't think God will ever provide that. So she sits around and mopes. Her foreign daughter-in-law, the outcast, the Moabite, believes God. Very long story short, she ends up with this man, this godly man, Boaz. And Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He is a relative, a distant relative of Naomi. He has the right to redeem Naomi and Ruth back into the fold, but he's not the closest redeemer. He's not the closest kin. There's one who is closer. And Boaz being a godly man doesn't try to subvert the system and not tell this man about that you have this opportunity, but he says, this man has rights to redeem you first. So we have to go to him. So that's where we pick up in chapter four where Boaz is going to the gate of the city to, to do a legal transaction. Now, when you hear gate, I don't want you to think how I would typically think in the way that we see a gate now, we think of just like maybe a metal gate that's thin, that's bars, that kind of thing. And you hear in verse one, you hear now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And for me, I kind of get this little picture of this thin little metal gate and he's brought, he's brought his lawn chair and just plopped it out. And he's just sitting by the gate, right? waiting to see if this dude's gonna come by. But that's not what the gates of the city look like in this day and time. Now I wanna show you a picture. This is a picture of a Solomonic gate, meaning King Solomon would build, build gates like this. So this was actually what a gate of the city would have looked like during Solomon's time, which was after Ruth. So it wouldn't have been this grand or this illustrious because everything Solomon did was grand and illustrious, but it would have looked something like this. It was a thick gate with rooms in it. And the way that it worked back then is that the elders of the city, every day their job was to go and sit in the gate and wait for the people of the city to come and be judged, if you will, and to have legal transactions, municipal transactions that they would deal with. This is where business got done. So that's why Boaz went to the gate. And it was this kind of gate. And these elders are sitting in this room and he goes, and you notice how it says, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. Uh, the, the author of Ruth continues to kind of be a little bit of a tongue in cheek of nothing is coincidental. Everything is providential. It's like, lo and behold, he happens to come by. You think that's accidental? God's at work here. He's moving Boaz into the right place at the right time as this Mr. No Name comes by. And Boaz reaches out to him. He says, hey man, Take a seat, I gotta talk to you. And he says, you know, I don't know if you know this, which by the way, uh, we don't know this guy's name and I'll talk to that in just a moment, but he had to have known that he was a close uh, family member of Naomi and that he was the closest kinsman redeemer because Bethlehem's a small village. It's not like a huge city. And, when, and chapter two tells us, the end of chapter one and beginning of chapter two, when Naomi comes back with Ruth, it's a big deal. They've been gone for 10 years and it says that all the women of the city greeted her and were like, you're back. We're not talking Metro Atlanta here. This guy probably knew, but he didn't want 
he didn't want any part of this. And we'll see why in just a moment. So Boaz says to him, verse two, says, and he took the 10 men of the elders of the city and says, sit down. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I am the next closest. I come after you. And he, that guy says, I will redeem it. And if you're in the story, you go, oh no, we wanted Boaz to redeem her. We've fallen in love with Boaz at this point. We don't even know this guy's name. We don't know if he's a good dude. We know Boaz is a godly man. And we're like, no, 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 no. He's not supposed to be the redeemer. It's supposed to be Boaz. But what's going on here is this. This is a very much of a shame culture back in that day. And so what Boaz has done is he's positioned him in front of the elders of the city and made him an incredible real estate offer. And whether he wants the land or not, he doesn't wanna be shamed in front of the elders of the city. And so he says, okay, I'll redeem it. And he's okay with redeeming it. We don't know his heart in this, but at least outwardly, he's okay with redeeming it as long as it's a really good real estate offer on the table. And what he's thinking is this, I'll redeem Naomi, since I'm our closest redeemer who's still living, but she's gonna die without a husband and without children because she's too old to bear children. So this is good, this is good. I'll get the land and eventually I'll bring it into my inheritance with my children that I already have. So sure, I'll redeem it, that sounds great. And then Boaz throws in the little kicker. Oh, by the way, with it, verse five, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the name of the dead, uh, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That's Malon. That's, that's Ruth's late husband. So in other words, oh, by the way, you're gonna get a foreign widow with which that comes all kinds of stigma. And uh, you're gonna inherit this land, but it's gonna not be in your name and for your inheritance and for your kids, but for her late husband's name to carry on. And he bails so fast. He's like, oh, well, okay, hold up. Listen to what he says. Verse six, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself. Listen why, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. In other words, this is too much personal cost. I, I can't do that. You see, I've got a family, I've got a, I've got a situation here where this would just be too costly to me. And so he gives up the right to redeem her and we all go, yay, it's gonna be Boaz, this is awesome. And so we're back into the story, we're excited, but we're maybe missing how we so closely connect with Mr. No Name here how we function the way that he functions and how our instinct is not to do what Boaz did, but it's to do what he did. And isn't it interesting that the very thing that keeps him from entering into the deal was because he wanted to preserve and protect himself and his name and we don't even know his name. 
That was the whole uh, impetus behind it was that, that he would preserve his name, my inheritance, so that my name is attached to the land that my kids will get, not this other dude who's dead. And we don't know his name. The irony of self-preservation is that you lose it in the long term anyway, if that's what you're fighting for. I mean, Jesus said it, if you seek to preserve your own life, you're gonna lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. But we are a people that are absolutely convinced that what I need most is to preserve my name, my heritage, my inheritance, my finances, my image, my reputation, my relationships, everything about me that's gonna position me to the watching world around me is that I have it together and you should want to be me. That's what I'm gonna fight for. And the way of the kingdom of God that was striking a chord in Boaz's heart, whether he realized it or not, is that that's not how God made us to function under his reign and rule. Listen to how Boaz talks. You heard the redeemer Mr. No, no Name, you heard him say, well, I can't do this. It's too much a personal cost to myself. Listen, verse 10, this is Boaz after he's cut the deal. By the way, can we bring back the whole take the shoe off and give it to the other person when we cut a deal? I mean, that would just be a kind of a cool way to do that. Did you catch that part? So he cuts the deal and apparently in that day and time, you just take off your sandal and hand it to the guy. That way we always know who's made a good deal. Right, you're walking around with just one shoe on and, and you go, okay, you must've cut a deal. And you can walk up to him, you can say, how did it go? Was it a good deal? Did you get what you wanted? Right? Never mind. All right, so. <laughs> Boaz has cut the deal. He's walking around with one shoe on now. And he's saying to, the, to all that are watching, all the witnesses, this is what I'm getting. And he says, verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite. He's talked about how he's redeem, redeeming this. And he says, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. There's a sense of great pride that he is redeeming a foreigner. Have you noticed in the book of Ruth that every time Ruth is mentioned, it's not just Ruth. It's Ruth with the qualifier, the Moabite. In other words, it's, hey, remember, she's not one of us. Hey, remember, she's an outcast. Hey, remember, she's a part of that people group that we hate. Hey, remember, she shouldn't be here. Hey, remember, this is her identity. It's never just Ruth, it's Ruth the Moabite. Can you imagine if there was always some type of stigma attached with your name every time your name was mentioned? Maybe you came from a place that people don't particularly like and every time you were introduced, that followed. That's Ruth's story here. But Boaz is saying it as though there's a sense of pride. And I get Ruth the Moabite. There's great joy in his declaration, but then listen to what he says. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. It's all focused on the benefit of someone else. One of my favorite commentaries that I've read as I've worked through this book is this commentary from a guy named Ian Duguid. Quoted him a couple of weeks ago. I'll quote him again here. He says this. He says, Mr. So-and-so was interested in ministry to the poor only if there was a payoff for himself and his family. Costly ministry without any personal payoff? Forget it. The irony is that by seeking to protect his future legacy in this way, 
Mr. So-and-so ended up leaving himself nameless, missing out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all, don't miss this part, a place in God's plan of salvation. Boaz took a different and more sacrificial approach, embracing the opportunity to leave a legacy for someone else. See, Mr. No-Name didn't know this, but God was at work, something way bigger than just redeeming Naomi and Ruth. God was actually putting the Redeemer square in the center of the salvation story. That the offspring of the Redeemer and Ruth was gonna be the grandfather of King David. And King David was gonna be in the line of the Messiah, King Jesus. God was doing something far bigger than Mr. No Name could see because he can only see himself. Boaz risked greatly. I don't want you to miss the, the reality that what Boaz did here was not easy. He took great risk, worthy risk, to move into the steadfast display of the steadfast love of God to another. Firstly, uh, he did this, he, he risked socially. Great social risk that he took in associating himself with a Moabitess widow, not just associating, but making her his wife. He was risking estrangement himself. He had, he had no guarantee that the elders would approve this because this is in a day and time. Remember, we're, we're, we're still under the old covenant law where God has said very clearly in his law that you are to not to intermarry with those that are not Israelites. And he did that not as an issue of race or ethnicity. He did that as an issue of faith because those other countries and kingdoms, they don't believe in the God of Israel. They have their own gods that they serve. And so you are not to intermarry with them. But God blesses this one because Ruth had, begun to believe. She was a believer in the God of Israel. And so he blesses this one as a little bit of a foreshadowing of what he's gonna do on a much bigger scale when another redeemer, capital R, comes along, Jesus himself, to redeem a whole host of foreigners to himself of all kinds of ethnicities and races. Uh, Boaz is risking a lot here racially, by the way. His social status is at play. He's, he's gonna be an outcast potentially for what he's doing racially here. And he's also risking a great deal financially. There's no profit for him financially in this deal. This is not something that he's gonna benefit from. It's gonna be to the benefit of another. So it begs the question, here's the question that we have to wrestle with. This is not some ancient story that doesn't apply to us today because at the core of the human struggle, it's the same issues. What does it look like? Here's the question. You have it printed in your bulletin. What does it look like for you and me to begin to step into the worthy risk of loving others with the steadfast love of God? What does it look like for us to begin to love selflessly, to love in a way that is devoid of self-preservation uh, uh, and protection? The vision statement of our church is that we wanna make and deploy mature and equipped followers of Christ. And listen to this, for the sake of family transformation, community transformation, 
and global transformation. That's what we wanna see God do. We wanna see him do that through people who are so gripped and changed and transformed by what God has done in us with his Hesed love that we display that transforming love to the world around us. But don't miss this, it starts in the family. What would it look like for us to love in this way in our marriages? where both spouses are standing square on the footing and on the grounds of, I'm the biggest sinner in my marriage. I'm the one who needs to own my sin the most. You're not the problem, I am. I want to move towards you with grace and compassion. If you're married in this room and you can't remember the last time that you moved towards your spouse asking for forgiveness and saying, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Then you've got a major problem in your marriage because that's not steadfast, hesed love of God living through you into the life of your spouse. That's selfish, self-protective, self-preservation love that's destroying your marriage and you may not even realize it. What would it look like, kids? Listen, what what would it look like if you began to realize you're not the most important person in your family? that your agenda doesn't take precedence over every other person's agenda in your family. Parents, what would it look like for us to realize that that children, that making idols of our children is a real issue today? That serving at the footstool of what our kids want trumps everything else. What does it look like to love our kids in a way with this hesed love that yes, is for the benefit of them, but maybe not in the way that they determine And kids, what does it look like to love your parents in such a way to where you say, I wanna serve you. (laughs) Parents would faint and maybe never wake up if that became the reality in our homes because our kids are being gripped with the Hesed love of God because the steadfast love of God is doing a work in our kids' lives to where they're loving that way. And then in the community, we actually begin to move towards people who aren't like us, building relationships that we normally wouldn't build, having conversations we wouldn't normally have, going to places we normally wouldn't go because God's steadfast love has so gripped us, we're moving out into the world around us in a unique and in a crazy way and contrary to the world in a way that's not just a political agenda, but a gospel-driven transforming work of God across racial and cultural and ethnic lines because Christ is doing a work in his people and we say, I have to display what's going on in here. And there are no barriers. They all come down in the framework of the gospel. What does it look like globally for us to be a people who will say, I will go anywhere you tell me to go and I will give anywhere you tell me to give for the sake of loving with great risk, with the steadfast love of God. And we do that because we are convinced that there's another who's done that for us. We are a people who stand at the gate on behalf of another because we had one who stood at a different gate on behalf of us. It wasn't a city gate, it was the very gates of hell. And he stormed that gate to defeat sin and death in our place, not just to redeem one foreign widow, but to redeem a whole host of foreigners, people who don't deserve to be in the fold, enemies even. 
and he's called us unto himself and he's adorned us as his bride and he's made us beautiful and he's clothed us with his righteousness. And then he's equipped us to go out and to be the very conduits of that love to the world around us. And the reason that we can risk, the reason that we can step out in selflessness and how we love others is because we know we have something far better than we could ever, ever, ever try to protect on our own. We have Jesus. We have the God of the universe dwelling within us and we don't have just a, a temporary land inheritance like Ruth got and Boaz got, but we have an eternal inheritance through the finished work of Christ. And when we understand what we have in Jesus, we begin to risk anything and everything for the sake of his gospel love, his Hesed love to go forth so that others may experience it as well. And we say, if you want me to give it all away, I'll give it all away. If you want me to risk this, I'll risk it because you're worth it, Jesus, and you're better. There's nothing that I could ever attain on this earth or seek to protect that will ever be as good as you, King Jesus. It's fun to think about what it would look like if we love that way. Some of us are fighting for that. But if a movement of God took over this place in such a way to where we begin to display the steadfast love that we are experiencing personally, family, community, and global transformation would begin to happen. I'm convinced of it. Would you be convinced of it with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace and for this story. Thank you for uh, the reality that you have loved us in a way that is just unfathomable that your hested love is enough to cause us to ponder for all of eternity the depths at which you have loved us. And God, through us, by your spirit within us, we get to be a people who display that love to the world around us. So would you use us powerfully to do that? And God, may, may we declare it's not for our namesake. We're not trying to preserve or protect our names, but we do it all for the name of King Jesus. We wanna love so that your kingdom may be built, not ours. We wanna love so that your name would be glorified, not ours. We are willing, oh God, to risk whatever we need to risk for the sake of your love going forth among us. Would you do what only you can do in that vein? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.